Welcome to Voices of NCAJ. We're talking to members of the North Carolina Advocates for Justice about what it means to be a trial lawyer, what it takes to be great at the practice of law, and how being a part of NCAJ enriches their lives and careers. Produced and powered by Law Pods. Welcome, everyone, to Voices of NCAJ, the podcast for the North Carolina Advocates for Justice. I'm Amber Nimux, your host and communications and marketing manager for NCAJ. We've been talking this year with NCAJ members about some of the outstanding CLE programs they've put together, and we're kicking off 2024 with my guest, Karma Henson. She is one of four panelists on the upcoming CLE Medical Malpractice Back to Basics. That program is coming up on January 26 at NCAJ headquarters in Raleigh. Participants can also attend virtually. To register, go to ncaj.com events. Karma is a partner at Henson First, where her practice focuses on nursing home litigation. She is vice chair of the American Association of Justice Nursing Home Litigation Group and immediate past chair of NCAJ's Nursing Home Litigation Section. She is also currently serving as NCAJ's membership vice president, and she has just, in fact, finished up a Board of Governors meeting and had to skip lunch. So, Karma, thank you so much for making time for this podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You are participating on MedMal Back to Basics. Tell me, who is it that would benefit the most from attending this Back to Basics CLE? So it's a CLE focused on medical malpractice, which includes my practice area, nursing home abuse and neglect. And so I think anyone who, first of all, anyone who practices medical malpractice or nursing home neglect will benefit because this will be a great opportunity to go back and revisit all of the different things that we run into in our cases on a day-to-day basis and make sure that we are all up to speed on um, how these cases are being approached, any updates in the law that we all need to do. So first of all, if you practice MedMal, it's a great idea to come. If you are interested in getting involved in medical malpractice, then it would be a good overview for you to see what are the some of the issues that we deal with, what are the things that we run into, on any particular case to help you decide, is this something you really want to get into or not? I don't think MedMal is the kind of practice area that people can really should dabble in because there are too many pitfalls for dabbling. But if you're interested in learning more to determine whether you want to get more specifically involved in MedMal, then this would be a great CLE. I throw a question at you that we didn't talk about before. How was it that you became interested in MedMal and really got into the practice of MedMal as an attorney? So, you know, I've been with our law firm, Henson First, since I got right out of law school and I started doing regular auto PI stuff. But Bob First, who's one of the founding partners of the firm, he was my mentor and kind of taught me everything he knew. And he started handling nursing home neglect cases when I had been there all of a year or two. And so I just started working on those cases with Bob, and we kind of learned the practice area together. And since then, I mean, it it just, I love doing that kind of work. I think it really can make a big difference, one, in the lives of people, and then two, in holding wrongdoers accountable. So my practice 
mine particularly, I'm not really a med mal in the broad sense of the word lawyer. I focus on nursing home. I let my partner, Rachel, first. She'll handle medical malpractice cases. And then the other folks that are going to be on this panel, Bailey Melvin, Phyllis Lyles King, David Stradley, they um, all handle the true med mal as well. But, you know, nursing home is a type of medical malpractice. It's just a very specific type. But you had someone that you learned with and learned from, and that was an important yes. part of, of how you developed and grew in your practice. Absolutely. Having good mentors, people that you can call upon with questions and help you along the way. And if you've got that person in your firm, in your practice area, that's great. If not, if you've got people that are in our, you know, professional negligence section that we're all willing to help each other, and that's why we're showing up at the CLE to, to help share our knowledge, to help people along and help provide them with the knowledge and the information that they need to learn the practice areas and to be successful. Right. And, and so this one is a little bit different than most NCAJ CLEs are structured. Most of our CLEs are, you have a, a day full of hour-long courses, and you'll have one, maybe two folks who are very well-versed in a topic area stand up and present on a very specific topic area. But here we have you and three of, of your colleagues, and you're going to be talking all day long about... <laughs> about a wide variety of things. Uh, what's the what's the thinking behind this approach? So I would probably punt that question to John Holton, who was the <laughs> chair and came up with the idea as to the thinking, the original thinking behind this approach. But yeah, it's going to be a, an interesting day. I'm going to need a lot of water. Um, but the good news is, like you said, David and Bailey and Phyllis, and so I think it'll be really interesting. We all have a little bit different, you know, focuses. And so between the four of us, we can all bring different perspectives to the matters that we're going to be discussing throughout the course of the day. So, for instance, one of the topics is case selection. Well, David Stradley may have a perspective on case selection with the kind of med mouse that he takes. My strategy on nursing homes is going to be completely different, and it's not something that David would likely, you know, be talking about. So I think you'll get different perspectives on all the different topics, which will be helpful to the folks that are attending because they can pick up on what works for them and what's more more um, pertinent to their practice area. So it'll be an interesting day. Yeah, that is interesting because you will get a, a lot of times in, in our CLEs, you have the folks who will talk about their particular areas of, of expertise. And then at the end, you have a short time to sort of um, to pick their brains individually. But this will give you that that opportunity to get those each of your perspectives on this wide variety of topics throughout the day. And just to go over, the, the folks on the panel with you are David Stradley, who is one of our members who practices in Raleigh at, at White and Stradley, and then Bailey Melvin, who practices in Greenville, and then Phyllis Lyle King, who uh, practices in Greensboro with the Lyle King firm. And you guys are going to be mm -hmm. talking on... This is a very a long list of topics on the CLE roster, 
including case selection, as you mentioned, expert retention and investigation, and then a couple of, of topics that, that you were particularly interested in, in talking about, which was um, one of which falls squarely into your uh, practice area of, uh, of nursing home litigation, which is corporate negligence. And how does that fit into what you do um, day in and day out? So corporate negligence obviously is not just a medical malpractice cause of action or not just a nursing home cause of action. We find corporate neglect in all types of tort cases. If you just have one person versus another person, two individuals, you're not dealing with corporate issues. However, if you have an individual who worked for someone who was negligent and you're able to prove that their negligence was caused by the decisions that are made by the corporations at the top that leads a person to commit negligence, then that's different. And in my nursing home cases, and also in a lot of medical malpractice, especially hospital type cases, I'm always seeking to prove not only what happened to my client or my client's loved one, but why it happened. Why did that person end up getting a horrible bed sore that turned into a stage four necrotic? We know that it happened because the person wasn't taken care of well, but why was that person not taken care of well? And so that's part of what we focus on in nursing home cases and then also in medical malpractice cases. And usually what you're able to show is that the corporate decision makers at the top are setting into place plans that the people boots on the ground have to follow regarding how much money in the budget they can spend on staffing. If you don't have enough staffing, you're not going to be able to give good care, whether it's in a nursing home or a hospital. And so you can oftentimes chase back follow the bad behavior or the bad conduct that leads to harm, oftentimes it all comes down to money. And those money decisions are made at the top by the corporation. And they know, right, they know that if they enforce a budget that does not allow enough money to put adequate staff on the floor, whether it's nurses in a hospital or CNAs in a nursing home, People are not going to get good care and they're going to get hurt and they're going to die. And that is a very simple explanation of corporate neglect. But that's what it ultimately is, is proving the bad care is because of bad corporate decisions made at the top. And their goal, of course, the reason these decisions are made is to make money, right? They put corporate greed over patient need. So I spend a lot of my practice focusing on the why, which leads back to the corporate neglect. And so I can talk for days on that topic. <laughs> I could talk for a long time on, on that particular topic, but it's, it's usually the root, of the, the root of all evil, right? All leads back to money. And that's what happens here. So are there trends that you've seen in, in recent years in, in the way that corporations are, are making decisions or in the way that the law has changed that you'll be able to share with with folks who come to hear what you're you're talking about at the CLE? So the trends are in the nursing home world. Again, that's my focus. The trends are, it continues to be to control the pocketbook 
But what you find in specifically in nursing home cases is they like to hide the money, right? So that that when just someone goes and starts digging on a very superficial level, they think, well, the nursing home doesn't have money, right? They don't have enough money to put adequate staff in the facility. And the truth of the matter is that's not true at all because they have this big corporate shell game and they set up all these different companies to run their their facilities, but they're siphoning the money out of the facility to go to this company and that company and that company and that company all to go back up to the top and pad the pockets of the people in charge, but they are able to hide it. And so, of course, we need more transparency, which is something that governments across the country are working on, and we're working on trying to get more transparency in the financial reporting when I get in a case and I start doing discovery, I, I go digging for it and I I have to find it. It's not something that's readily available. But if you know where to look and where to dig, you can find it and show the money trail and how the money's all siphoned up back up to the top. That's corporations, not just nursing homes, but that really is how nursing homes are operated to set up all these different companies to siphon the money back up to the top. And so that that will lead into the next um, list of topics, discovery, which is something you guys will be talking about at length as well, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So it does lead directly into discovery because to prove the why, you've got to get the documents and you've got to, one, know what to ask for. And then, two, you can't take no for an answer because they don't want to give you the documents that you ask for. They want to claim that they are privileged or that they're confidential or, you know, that you're asking for something that's not likely to lead to relevant evidence and, or, and all of these things. And so you have to be willing to put the time in to really push back when they refuse to give you the information that you've requested and be willing to file the motion to compel and go and argue the motions to compel and explain to the judge why this really is relevant. Now, sometimes it takes doing a little bit of discovery on the front end to be able to then go to the judge and say, look, judge, this is what we already know. This is why this information is relevant. But pushing, pushing forward and filing your motions to compel to get the discovery that you need to prove your case. Another thing that I do, and I spend way, probably way too much time in it, but ends up being worthwhile at the end, is email discovery, e-discovery. Everybody knows what that is and getting the emails between the corporate folks and the folks on the ground and getting the emails that are going back and forth about the staffing and about the budget and about all of that information. Because when you get those emails, that's when you find that corporate really is in control because corporate is sending emails to the people at, on, the, on, on the facility level saying, why are you over budget? Cut your staffing, get your budget back down, get it back down, get it back down, which as we know, is a direct lead into bad care. So it's not just asking for the budgets and the P&L statements and all that stuff. It's also going after that e-discovery because when they're sending those emails, they're not thinking a lawyer's going to look at it. But that tells you what's going on. So that's something we spend a lot of time on too. Are there new ways that you are are learning to go after those emails or is it just continuously being vigilant about like thinking about every possible way 
that people might be communicating with each other? So (laughs) I could cry thinking about all the time that I spend going after these emails, but it really is worth it at the end of the day. It's just knowing what the topics that you want to get, because you've got to help set the terms, right? The search terms for them to go and and pull the email. So you've got to really think through what are you looking for in your case? What do you need to get? And, you know, some defense lawyers are going to push back and say no. And then you've got to file your motion to compel. The good news is, is that our rules allow us to get these emails, right? There's nothing that says that emails are not discoverable. They are clearly discoverable. So it really is just taking the time. It's also knowing, though, be careful what you ask for, because when you ask for a bunch of emails, you're going to get a bunch of emails and then you've got to go through them. And there are, you know, different platforms out there that can help you search through those emails more efficiently than just sitting and reading one after one after one. I mean, I've got one case where I've got 100,000 emails that have been produced and it's a bit overwhelming. So you've got to know how to sift through that stuff without tanking your pr- productivity in all other areas of your practice. So that's that's part of what we have to do. Wow. So that's learning from the experience of knowing what how to find that needle in the haystack is something that you guys will be able to share with with folks coming to this CLE. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And tell me, as part of that discovery conversation, you'll also be talking about DSO negotiation. What will that conversation be like? So the traditional approach to discovery scheduling orders is to have a staggered designation period, meaning the plaintiff will designate their expert on this particular date and make their expert available by depositions this date. And then 60 days later, the defendants will designate their experts. And so we do the plaintiff first and then the defendants next. So one of the things that a fair number of med mal lawyers have been doing, and myself included, is moving the court to not allow the staggered approach, but to require us to designate all at the same time so that the defense doesn't get the benefit of seeing who we have and what our folks have to say before they have to go and hire their person to try to one-up us. And so, you know, we've been successful, not in every case. There are some cases where the judges are just like, nope, you've always done staggered and we're going to keep doing staggered. But then there's other cases where we've been really successful and we've been able to get the simultaneous designation. Myself, William Goldfarb, other lawyers in the state are really trying to do this. And we just think that is an approach that can help to level the playing field between the two parties or the two sides. So we'll talk about that and, you know, the pros and cons of that and what kinds of cases we think it makes sense to try that on and what kinds of cases it doesn't. We'll talk about some of that on next Friday. One other topic I know that has been a point of discussion since the pandemic has been um, laws that gave immunity to healthcare providers who were providing any sort of care related to COVID. And this was something that was really sort of a, a bane for med mal practitioners. And I know you you uh, really did a lot of work in this area, and it continues to be something that folks in, in this practice area are fighting against. Yes, it is, because even though that finally the immunity statute was lifted or revoked, for lack of a better word, 
As of August of 22, there was no longer any immunity, but there are still cases that are in suit now where the care happened before August of 22 when that immunity statute was still in effect. So there are cases that have either already been filed or they still can be filed because the statute hasn't passed where that defense can still be raised. The good news is with the work, I mean, Elizabeth Todd did so much work on litigating this issue in a nursing home case that she had and did so much research and then other lawyers as well. The good news is we really have gotten to the place where I think most courts, if not all, recognize that this is an affirmative defense, meaning the defendants have to prove all of the elements in order to get that immunity. It's not just a, oh, well, it happened during this period of time, your case is out. So you shouldn't get a case dismissed solely based on the immunity statute. The defense has got to prove that the provision of care was affected in some way by the COVID stuff. So it's turning out not to be as horrible as we thought it was in actual practice in our cases, but it's nonetheless, it's still there. And if you file a case now that happened during that time frame, you're going to get that defense raised. But that means you have to do discovery on it, right? We've got to do discovery to try to figure out, tell me how you're going to prove it and see if you can cut it off at the pass. But that's still an ongoing problem that we will continue to deal with. And we're so glad that the governor finally lifted that. And as you said, August of 22. And this is just a sampling <laughs> of all of the topics that you guys are going to touch on in terms of MedMail. And it's going to be a really terrific discussion. And I'm sure that you guys are going to have a lot, a lot of rapt listeners and a terrific um, back and forth as well, because I know you're going to take lots of questions as well. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. I think it'll be a fun day. It'll be a good day. Well, thank you so much for being here, Karma. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Amber. Lawyers can take the MedMal Back to Basics CLE virtually or in person at NCAJ headquarters in Raleigh. To find out more, look for the January 26th event on our website at ncaj.com slash events. And while you're there, you can check out the whole lineup of CLE and other member events we have planned for this February and the rest of the spring. The calendar is chock full. So thank you again, Karma, for helping put on this fabulous program and for being on the podcast today. And thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, Amber. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Voices of NCAJ. For more information on the North Carolina Advocates for Justice and how to join or support NCAJ, please visit our website at www.ncaj.com.